0: You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2309 North Broad Street. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m.
1: I want to talk about um, what we do in the church fails us. And I had a story that I wanted to start with, but... I, I, I cut it for two reasons. One, I think it made the matter at hand a little bit less than serious, and I didn't like that. And two, it ended up being too long anyway. So there isn't really an illustration. I'm just going to get right to the, right to the heart of the matter, okay, which is slightly unusual for me. Um, we have a proverb that says that tells us that we're all recovering from a sin addiction. Have you guys seen this before? Will you get the slide up if it it exists? Um, But Do you have it back there? Oh nice. Everyone is recovering from uh, the sin addiction, so expect conflict. Um, Mm. We're trying to do something that's special, alternative, different from the world, but the whole place is kind of covered with problems. There's systemic issues, that affect, uh, I'm sorry to say this, every aspect of the, of the world, including every aspect of the country, including the church. It's hard to escape those. It's hard to uh, kind of clean yourself from it. And it would be a little disingenuous to say that just because we're the body of Christ, we're immune from it. We're still affected. Um, so we strive to be a safe place, but we fail at that. And we can't keep you safe from, you know, pain or harm, try as we might, right? It's hard to do that, you know, every, uh, every kind of parent knows that when you're raising children, some bad things are going to happen to them, you know? I tell parents sometimes, your child will, without a doubt, fall down the stairs. And there's like nothing you could do to stop that from happening. And it'll probably happen, rather, like, within the first two and a half years of their life. Yeah. Right? Has it happened? Oh, it any parents, by the way, still <laughs> going with no? Zora still is, is generally handheld, right? Yeah. So no falling. That's good. Um, any other? Uh, yes? <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> Christina, are you still, is you still a record here? No, it's all okay, yes, it Okay. It, <laughs> it will happen. <laughs> Just taking a little survey here in case my uh, anecdote was wrong bad things are going to happen to us. And Christians, if they have softened hearts, Jesus softens our heart, Uh, we feel acutely um, the pain, the harm that others feel, the injustice in the world. That's a good thing. Now, sometimes they don't. But I think if you're following Jesus, you have a tender heart where you're feeling this, noting it, prophesying through it, you might say. Well, well, this isn't a prophecy sermon yet. Um, We're attuned to feeling injustice because of the one, because we follow the one who makes things right, who makes all things right and makes all things new. We're idealistic because we know how great the body of Christ can be because we relate to Jesus. It's hard to temper our expectations because of how good we know it can be. Unfortunately, the church has failed in numerous ways, um, globally, personally, throughout history, up until this moment in time. It's made up of people. And it, inha- and it, um, and it, it inhabits, it lives. The church is in a world that's kind of saturated with sin. So it's impossible for it not to mess up. But that doesn't mean we should strive to, we shouldn't strive to do and be better, because we can. We have Christ as the author of our lives. Jesus won't fail us, but the body of Christ will, just like you'll fall downstairs, And I think you can expect that. You can know that it might happen, but you don't have to temper your expectations all the time. You don't have to guard against it all the time. Isn't that a hard thing to do? To be realistic without being cynical. But to be honest, the church has messed up enough that people have lost hope in the entire institution. And sometimes Jesus along with it. Circle of Hope is unique in the sense that, I don't know if you've noticed this, and I th- I, I, we strive to be sensitive enough that we attract a lot of folks who maybe have been injured by the church or are suspicious of it. And we might even have a reputation that precedes us about this, so it's incumbent upon us to measure up to that reputation. It's hard to do that. Especially because people usually think we're we're a different kind of place. But no, we'll still mess up sometimes. And I'm I'm trying not to sugarcoat it too much, because I don't want uh, to trick you into something else. One thing you'll get around here is that I think we even say that. More than just keeping people from pain, we want to help contextualize pain that people feel. As a result of being made sensitive by Jesus, but we also want to create an environment where forgiveness and reconciliation can't happen. That's like the cornerstone of our faith in a sense. Mutuality can occur along with repentance and transformation. The church needs to be a place where people can transform and grow and change their ways and move into how Christ is making them. But Jesus promises his disciples that they will suffer pain, loss, trouble, harm in this world. The world will hate us as it hated Jesus. Jesus endured suffering in order to overcome it. So we'll have our share of suffering to endure. And I'm not trying to romanticize that suffering. It isn't necessarily a mark of your piety if you collect suffering. It's kind of a mark of how crummy the world is. When it comes at the hands of the supposed healing agents, the church, it means that our work isn't complete. But it does make our work much harder. The truth is the church, when it fails those within it, fails those outside of it. When we don't reach people who are looking for Jesus, we fail at being the church. We say this exists for those yet to join, and when our reputation keeps people from us, it's a failure of its own kind. What do I do when the church fails me? That's not, that's wh- When the church fails someone, they might not even be able to ask the question, because they don't even know how to put it together. When our people are too ashamed to share or don't that's another way the church can fail and that's not an indictment of the people who don't we should have something worth talking about you know when we don't make the world better we're failing to right and so I think we should be real plain about how this is how this works you know I can be plain because I'm still proud of the work we're doing and I still know good things are happening even when we fail right so I'm holding both in my hand if that sounds hard to do it is, and it w- won't always work out. Nothing really works. Being in community is messy. Anyone, can anyone uh, validate this, based on their experience? Some of you think it's literally messy, like things aren't clean. You know. Well, don't done a lot of your conflicts come from that? If, if by the way, if your conflicts don't come from things not being clean, it's because you're the one that isn't clean. <laughs> okay, so just to help you just let me just help your friends out for a second, okay. You know, how many conflicts have you had over dishes, literally? It's a tremendous uh, tremendous uh, problem. I, I have a lot of stories about this. We'll get to them. I've lived with some of you in community even before we were like, really grown-ups. Would you agree with that? Yeah. You're the one. That's what I'm talking <laughs> about you, <huh? laughs> Technically we were. We were like 21. Mm-hmm. I was like, right, it's, <laughs> it's a good age. Great age. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it's messy. It's complicated. So I can promise you here an earnest group of people trying to work something out together. I think that's what we have. I can't promise you being free of a mess. I don't want you to, lose your te- uh, temper- uh, to temper your expectations too much or lose hope. No, Jesus anticipated such a mess when he taught his disciples about being in community. We're responsible for each other in community. It's a group project we're working on. Got to be careful there because you're not really responsible for each other's feelings as much as you are each other as a whole people. Right? We're responsible to treat each other like Jesus treats us. That's where the responsibility is. And when something festers, we all can smell it. And it wounds the weakest of us. So in community, we're creating a a culture of discipleship. And our lack of discipline causes problems. We have a proverb here. This is really weird. This is one of the weirdest proverbs we have, I think. (laughs) Nothing should be left to fester until the pastors can smell it. Does it make sense? Is it a vivid enough image? You know, I always say as you open your, like, like, you open your fridge and something smells in there that you should have thrown away. That's what we're talking about. Or, when you know you shouldn't, like, don't throw away certain things on, like, Monday if your trash pickup day is Sunday. You've got to organize that a little bit, you know. Figure out how you're going to work it out. Freeze it, right? You could do that. <laughs> what? Some things can't, I mean, (laughs) I have a garbage disposal story I'll tell you later. You can't put everything in the garbage disposal. Anyway, try as I might. We're responsible for each other, and we don't want things to fester. And when they do fester, our lack of discipline can cause a child, or someone who has childlike faith, to stumble. And there's a great cost to that. Jesus is giving instructions on how to be in community in Matthew 18. It's a section of the Bible about how to be in community. Now, good Anabaptists, Anna meaning re-baptized, we get baptized all the time, like, Nate, you got baptized yesterday, right, for the second time, right? Yeah, Yeah, so you can just keep going if you want. It's fine. (laughs) You know, I kind of felt like I got baptized, too, you know, because I was with you. That's not really how it works, (laughs) but it feels like that to me. Um... Jesus, the Anabaptists run to, we say, Matthew 18. Did you ever hear this passage before? And they're only really talking about the end of Matthew 18 when Jesus is telling you how to forgive everybody. And then at the very end, he says, forgive everyone eternally. But there's stuff before that that helped contextualize this. And the passage I'm talking about is what I was just referencing. Um, Someone out loud read this. This is Matthew 18, 6 through 9. We're going to go through the whole thing. It's going to be too long, probably. Please, read Matthew 18.
0: If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea.
1: Pause. Millstone. Remember that song we were just singing, Silo, and you're milling the flour down into, into a... You're pulverizing yourself in the song, and you're, you're communion bread by the end? Um, I'm not mocking the song. I'm just explaining it, but I kind of sound like Seinfeld when I explain things, so it sounds too... Sorry, I need a better life. Um, (laughs) The millstone is what we're talking about here, and it's hung around your neck, so it's large. Jesus is, it's not that nice. Keep going.
0: Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell.
1: Gotta love Jesus. That's how he starts the passage on community. I think it's important too. I love this passage for multiple reasons. Um, did you ever go to a church and they say that women shouldn't wear yoga pants? <laughs> ever hear this before? Jesus says, hey, if yoga pants cause you to stumble, cut out your eye, homie. <laughs> like that's, that's, I'm hitting you right where the issue is. And it's with your eyes, not with the pants. So that's instructions in the Lord. Um, and maybe literal instructions, you know? There was a guy named uh, St. Matthew of uh, uh, Saint Matthew the Poor. He's a Coptic dude. He, he fixed shoes for a living, right? So he had some sort of pointy object, I guess, he was fixing shoes with. And he thought he looked at the woman's leg, that his, whose shoe he's fixing wrong, and he poked his eye out. This is a real, it's a myth. I don't know if it really happened, but in Egypt, it's told. <laughs> so there's an area that this happens in. I'm not telling you, it's, not a, it's, it's, a, it's a hyperbole, but it's a serious thing. Don't take your all at home and do that tonight. You know what an all is? We have one, because we're bookbinders in the Rashid household. Has a little cork on the top to make sure no one po- pokes the rail. But Jesus is serious about this, right? His hyperbole is delivering that level of importance. It would be more tolerable for you to hang a millstone around your neck and be drowned than to cause the faith of somebody to, 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 to fall away because you sinned in some egregious way. I think it's really important to talk about this. And I get a real hype when the weakest among us is faith is affected by the harm of others. If you hurt the conscious conscience of an individual, it would be better for you to cut off your hand or ear or gouge out your eye. Illustrative, poetic language. But it does show how serious he is about problems, how serious he is about sin. You jump to the end of Matthew 18 and just forgiving everybody willy-nilly, that's not what Jesus is talking about. There's some intensity to this to begin with. We take it real serious around here. The wounded person is the one he prioritizes, and his response that causes the lost faith is epic, extreme, right? even the most enraged person, right, whose fires of uh, against injustice burn the hottest, even this idea seems extreme. When the person is in power or in leadership, Jesus is committed to just ends. If your sin, which you might justify because of your wisdom or experience or uh, ability to handle your uh, libertarian attitude, affects a weaker person, well, yours is coming, is what Jesus is saying. Instead, express hospitality and understanding to those who are little among us. We have a bunch of children in our church, and only the most sinister person would seek to harm them. When we start treating each other with that same level of sensitivity, I think we're beginning to create a safe place. When we don't, the community will smell like that, too. Jesus continues to make his argument. Someone keep reading this. Now we're in 10 through 14. Someone out loud.
0: See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than any about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should bear.
1: Jesus loves even the worst offender, but we aren't called to be to be Jesus here. Starts with this epic point. Now he moves to the second one about the sheep wandering off. Could be because of lost faith, or he could have scrammed because he did something wacky and he needed to run away. Jesus keeps making his argument. Humbly love everyone around us. That's what defines community. But he argues that God despite his majesty and maybe dominion over the whole world, despite the power of God, the magnitude of God's mission, despite um, not even needing us to fulfill it, but offering us the beautiful gift and invitation of being engaged in it, he, God loves us so much that God would rather chase us, chase after us, and leave the whole flock behind to find us. Jesus follows right down that path, right down that example, Write down whatever wretched path we take or the path that we ran from this dangerous flock from and never leaves us always with us bears us fully and wholly and bears our problems fully and wholly and bears your sin fully and wholly and he does that work so that we don't need to so that we don't need to fight for our own forgiveness the smell of the festering wound never repels Jesus but the fact that Jesus never leaves us and loves us, you might be able to take this passage and actually think that it's now your responsibility to bear the burden of the whole world on your shoulders and to bear the community's sin and never have a conflict about it because your highest calling is to always chase after the, the annoying sheep that ran away. I don't think that's what we're, what, what's happening here. I think this contextualizes the teaching, though. You know, you might never have a conflict in the name of humbly loving all the people around you. We can go around justifying everyone's inaction, their passive aggressive behavior, and all their dark secrets because we think we're as powerful as Jesus is. Well, you're not. The work we do in community is way messier than that. And it's much more complicated because once we start being part of the community and in an intentional one where we're living together, where we're interacting with each other, we start to see how messy things can get and how much hurt we can cause one another and how we sin. And so Jesus knows that. He knows we can't bear it all on our own as we go wandering after all the stray sheep. So what happens when a person... So, so that's one thing, but then what happens when someone does sin against you? <laughs> Jesus has his millstone analogy. If they run off, he'll find them, but you don't have to go looking. But what happens if you're still connected? What happens if it's your friend? What happens if it's your um, partner? What happens if it's uh, your mom? Or dad. I always go for mom in that one for some reason. (coughs) I think because I like my mom more. And I could see myself having a conversation with her about this. Our goal is to win them over and to reconcile with them and not to shun them. That's another old Anabaptist thing. We shun people. But even that has an end. Let's keep working with Matthew 18. Someone's going to have to look this up, Okay. This is a really important part of the, of the message so far. This is Matthew eighteen fifteen until I tell you when to stop. If your
0: brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, it's between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in
1: my name, there I am with them. Alright, oh, that's good. Do you ever know that that's that little out of context passage that you always hear? Where two or three are gathered, there is God with you. It's, it's in this, it's in this John, right? This is, this, is, this is how it's working out. Jesus says, start the dialogue with private reasoning. First step of love. It's hard to do that, because you always talk about your wound with someone else. We, you pass the stench to them, too. You know, I always start. You know, my, uh, I talk to my you know, wife about a lot of things. You know? And I kind of feel like we're one, so maybe it's still not triangulating yet. I don't know. I don't know if it's a great idea. But it happens, right? You have your people like this, yes? People, you vent to your best friends and say, "Hey, don't vent to me because this isn't really helping you. It's not really cathartic. You're just getting more angry. Like you, you, you keep it, you're getting hyper. I don't know if that's going to help you have a conversation later with this person. You know, and now, and if you do that too much, every sometimes there's a whole group of people that know about something, but 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 the offender is clueless. You know." Sometimes you want to, and then sometimes the opposite happens. You do something, and then you want to declare your sins to the world because of your overwhelming sense of guilt. Did you ever do this before? Well, meaning people exonerate us, and then we proceed down a destructive path. Because we haven't gotten better. We haven't reconciled. We just publicly confessed, and now, we're, now we feel OK. Because we just you know made a post on Twitter about it. We don't need to all smell your wound. Or your and your lack of boundaries could affect all of us. One of the reasons that directness is effective is that it allows for dialogue that might help reveal why your brother or sister's actions hurt you and what that says about who you are, how you grew up, how you're growing now. It helps humanize the individual who sinned, so to speak. So it's almost um, <coughs> never just one person or another. It's often a complicated process. Would you agree with this in general? That when you're trying to reconcile, you're exchanging. Uh, often there's apologies on both sides, right? Sometimes there isn't. Sometimes there doesn't need to be. But sometimes there is. I would say oftentimes in most cases. Um, So, even when Jesus seems formulaic, if you actually go and have a dialogue with an individual who's wronged you, chances are there'll be a lot of reconciliation. That doesn't always happen, though. Um, You could take this passage and make sure no one ever judges you. You know, I do it the other way most of the time, and um, I confront someone about the sin that's in their life that's causing me or others to stumble. That's an important point. You're starting with the sin that offended you. But in many of these cases, the more assertive person might be defensive or might start the conversation. Or do you ever get this? You're talking to someone about a problem, and they say, well, let let me tell you all the problems I have with you. This has this ever happened to you? Where you finally muster up the courage to say, hey, here's an issue I have with you, but they have all the pro- now. Now you've opened up the conversation, well, guess what? Here's a million things that are wrong with you. Hey, hey, I, can I just, we can talk about that in a moment. Just wait. I want, I want, I want, don't just steal all the emotions. Let me talk. People who are married are nodding their head because this happens all the time. I know. And some of you have a whole list somehow in your head of specific times and places where things happened. And no one knows if it's true even, but (laughs) it seems true because it's so specific. Right? Has this ever happened to you before? Where some of us just remember the feeling of the conflict and not the content of it. I remember I was annoyed at you, but I have no idea why I was annoyed that day. This happens. So hear each other out. Hear the person out who's bringing forward the accusation, if you will. And don't just retort as if them doing something wrong in any way justifies you. Like, those aren't connected. Um, So the more assertive person often dominates this, the less assertive person ends up taking care of them forever. And then we're both going to have to work out how this all works. Confrontation is really hard, and humility is hard, too. It's hard to do this, especially one-to-one. And you might think, in the short run, it's easier just to avoid or forget, rather than to forgive. But the mind is not so accommodating. It's really hard to just forget what's happening. Time doesn't just make things better. It's very difficult for us to forget feelings. And if we make a practice of sweeping it under the rug all the time, you might trip over it one day. Because there's a bump in the rug. In the long run, we need a, a, deep and, uh, a deep act of forgiveness to be free. And I think most of our conversations uh, usually work out after a direct conversation. I don't think they always do, but some, uh, they often do. And a lot of intimate relationships begin there. Go and talk to the individual that wronged you instead of holding on to the resentment, the anger, the hatred. It's great to dialogue, and it's good to do so with a plan and a time in mind. You don't want to delay too much, but it's nice if you can say, hey, this is bothering me. I want to talk about it. Um, I want to work out the conflict. People who have had premarital counseling with me know this. What's the, what's, the, what's the one I made you all do? Something about a skiing vacation. Wasn't that the example? Anyone remember this? Where you say something like, "They're working out, the couple's working out where they want to go. I like to go to the beach. I know you like to go skiing. And I'm trying to figure out how we solve this problem. That's a smaller one. Do you remember this? Use both. S- OK, whatever. It <laughs> happened. Do you remember <laughs> <laughs> <No. laughs> it. Yeah, that was it. It was the active listening part. Yeah. I, I want to hang out with my friends more, but you're taking up all my time. I'm doing it really poorly right now, because I'm already like accusing the person of doing something, <laughs> right? But um, it's, it, we, we try to be direct and try to solve the problem that way. Um, Intimacy is engendered when you directly address each other. Good to come with a plan and and time in mind. As opposed to doing it right when you're hot. Right when you're angry, you know. Or like when you're resentfully doing dishes. You ever do dishes with resentment? Like you're really just going hard into into the plate. You're mad. You're slamming cabinets for some reason. You're just, you're angry, you know. You get to the wine class, you just break it apart. Don't be careful, because that could happen if you have like the power of anger and you've just done like a cast iron, <laughs> <laughs> and then you're just like, yeah, and here's this glass, Psh, you know. Don't do that. Or your roommate broke all your dishes and you're mad. Someone someone left the toilet seat up again. You fell into the toilet. <laughs> you're saying this doesn't happen. You're looking at me like this doesn't happen. Uh, you like oh, you're fine just waiting in the toilet, I guess. <laughs> Sorry, that's too funny. But yeah, that happened. That's annoying, right? Put away an empty car of orange juice. Did you ever see that? There's oranges in here, huh? It's too light. Or this is the worst. Maybe for some of you. Your roommate drank all your beer. You know, and didn't even like put any money in. We used to have a we used to have a box. I was the I was the inventor of this, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, definitely, because I remember your reaction. And um, <laughs> we had a box where he said, you drink a beer, you put a dollar in here. This was when a beer was a dollar a bottle. So it was a long time ago. And then I'll, I open, I, remember I opened the box, and there's a lot of IOUs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, is, I can't believe it. How's this happening? It was you, or I'm not going to name <laughs> the others. It was definitely you. each paid. Never mind. Oh, this is a long time ago. <laughs> Sorry, it's such a colorful—you'll never forget that one. Uh, anyway, you finally—you know—not you know—the you, you know, moment when you reach for it and it's gone isn't the moment to have the conflict, right? A, let's make a plan here. We're going to have a house meeting about this. Mm-hmm. Um, bachelors living together—that is the central pro- uh, central problem—is like beer supply. <laughs> I don't know, um, but the result of doing that will be <laughs> intimacy and understanding and maybe even changed behavior. You know, we aren't doing these things to agree to disagree. We actually need to reach some common ground, you know. Of course, things get heated, a little difficult, we can't keep our cools, tempers flare, fish, you you clench your fists, your knuckles get white. My knuckles get white, because I'm not white, I'm real mad. Um, Someone walks out of the room, (laughs) anger builds up. And when the sin at hand is with an angry person, this is risky. You might even feel unsafe in the moment. And there are times where a direct confrontation isn't safe, and it's okay to bring someone along. I don't want to be too rudimentary or, 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 uh, or uh, formulaic about Jesus' order. I do think it's generally good. Sometimes you do need to bring someone with you, though, right from Jump Street, because the situation isn't safe. When the conflict, conflict falls apart, take a time out. Get to the conflict with a plan, an idea. Sometimes that plan involves someone else. It's okay to ask for self. help. Your cell leader, your pastor, other friends can be great helps in this case. The conflict is getting intense at this point. Didn't work out when you did it one to one. It's hard. So it usually will, sometimes it won't, especially when we're talking about serious cases betrayal, violence, addiction, abuse. Uh, adultery all these things now we're getting into high-level conflict right not just like beer fund issues or like you forgot my birthday you, you know, that's a big one right we think it's a big one you missed it you missed the anniversary date you know just to comfort the married people here if that's the height of the conflict you've had it's not that bad even then I know you're saying no it is real bad If I was just at the restaurant waiting you know there's there is unfortunately much worse things that can happen. Usually it'll get worked out one-to-one, one with a mediator or two mediators, but even then, sometimes the church needs to get involved. The church has to be rooted in Christ and saturated with prayer before getting into the dialogue because the church has historic biases in these situations. And a lot of times you end up condemning the prophets among us, people that will guide us to a new truth that God is trying to reveal, They get excommunicated. Developing eyes to see those people takes time, requires discipline. And for our purposes, the church doesn't need to be everyone. In fact, in some cases, it might not make sense for it to be everyone. Sometimes the wound is too extreme and can't be handled by everybody. If you made it very public, some people would suffer some trauma, even not hearing it. So we have to be careful with that. We don't need to preoccupy people also with one juicy piece of gossip. It's fun to talk about other people's problems, but it's not that helpful. We want redemption and reconciliation. It's tempting tempting to kick someone while they're down, or tidy up the church by sweeping out all the people we don't want in the church. And sometimes that's called maintaining standards. And shunning people is common in the church's history. You know, someone gets pregnant, they're out of the church. We struggle to have enough confidence in Jesus to face things that are wrong and tragic with grace and hope. We can point out all the sins of our people around us, some of which are smaller, some of which are bigger. But we need to, we struggle to face difficult relationships. But I have to say that this mentality is often used to never address failure, never address sin, because we're never actually having any accountability, because we never want to shun someone, because we never want to be judgmental, and all of a sudden, the church is full of weirdness. That's no good either. Contain the conflicted in love, the angry, the hurt, people who are suffering with mental illness, people that are unfaithful, unaccountable, disobedient, can take us over, use all of our time, demand our attention and emotion. The church is often fertile for the weeds of self-interest. We collect people like that. And that's okay. But we struggle to keep the difficulties we're facing from becoming part of someone else's conflict. Or we're drawn into someone else's dysfunctional and damaging and sick ways of relating. So we try to contain conflicts. But we do so so that healing can occur. The church needs to be an incubator for healing. That sanctuary that we're talking about should result in healing and transformation. A place to get better. And so yes, there will be pain, but there is life after the pain. And if you, here's the thing, if you don't own your dignity and take initiative and make commitments, we are less safe for you. If you don't want to grow up and own the ways you've harmed people and change, we're not we cannot facilitate safety for you. You have to change and there should be a uh, fruit of your change, evidence that you did knowable Palpable evidence for it. That's the end of the reconciliation process. This sounds a little intense, but this is, these, these, if, there, if there's no scripture and just a blurb, that's a proverb in Circle of Hope. So that's part of our lore that we've discerned together. We contain coffers for healing, not so secrets are kept. We cont- when, when, and when the containment fails, it's important that we talk about it. When it succeeds, we should talk about it too. Because there are success stories that still remain contained for some reason. And there are stories that don't work that we should talk about. And the result of it not working, Jesus says, treat them as you would a tax collector or a pagan. Um, That's a little weird for us because we don't even know what that really means. And a tax collector is writing the gospel that's saying this, so it's not exactly clear what he's talking about. I don't think he was a current tax collector when he was doing it, though. He did repent and heal. But that's what we call excommunication. Did you ever hear that before? Evangelicals have a hard time excommunicating anyone because they're not really in churches. They're kind of like all, their personal relationship with Jesus is paramount. So you can't really excommunicate yourself from your own thing. So that's not a not great. We're a body, though. We can actually do that um, if we need to. Jesus leaves it a little open. But if the person refuses to listen to the church, he says, treat them like you would. A pagan or a tax collector. Jesus has, uh, discipled those people and brought them along with him. When they wandered off, he transformed them again. But it's permissible, if you will, to do that. To reject someone completely and excommunicate them from the church is rare. But Jesus, but 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 it's at least permitted. You're not trying to make a policy out of this statement in Matthew 18. Excommunication sometimes needs to happen for the safety of others. Expelment needs to happen. You know, I'm not, we, we can't be afraid to push out uh, wolves with the help of your cell leader, coordinator, or pastor. I can count the, on my hand the amount of times that I've done this. It's not that frequent. Someone is there for a clearly nefarious reason, so they're out. And sometimes the reconciliation doesn't work and you, know, you don't want to get better and you're not there for some evil reason, you're just not quite there yet. And so maybe the invitation's open for you to come back after you've done some work, but, you, you, but public worship might be too intense, for t- too, too, uh, too much at this moment. You know, We always say we're not just the meeting, we're not just the cells, so you can actually still be a part of the community even if you can't participate in certain ways. You know, We need to apply uh, Matthew 18 because we can't perfectly love or heal because the church will fail us, because our wounds need to come to light to be better. How you're wounded in a certain space can be shared. In short, what do we do when the church fails us? Well, I think be reassured that Jesus takes it seriously and reserves the harshest language in the whole New Testament with the whole millstone thing. Four people like that. And for both those who must leave even if they are excommunicated, Jesus will still go after them. They're one of the, they're the one sheep by themselves, away from the 99. Jesus goes after them. We don't all, the, the entire flock doesn't go finding them, because the sheep will all get dispersed. They've got to still hang out together. And we have a, pr- a process for healing and forgiveness and reconciliation. It won't be perfect. But don't let your cynicism overtake you, even though the church will invariably fail you in one way or another the redemption and the healing that can follow is worth remembering, worth waiting for, worth enacting. So, that's that was that was a lot on a big on a on a ma- on Matthew 18. That'll be it for now. We can do some prayer and the, and some talk back before Aline and the team come up to conclude our time together. Is that cool? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being here. Help us to be uh agents in your ministry of reconciliation, wanting people to be uh won over, healed and redeemed, but knowing that when that doesn't happen, you have a different plan and a a different way of uh, helping them. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect dropdown at circleofhope.net.